turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. This morning is the 20th sermon in a series we've been doing this year in this little letter to uh, the exiled believers in Asia Minor, the elect exiles. Our passage this morning is verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. As I begin, I want to recall that my wife and I met um, in Shakespearean fashion. What I mean by that is we started dating at the beginning of a class on Shakespeare in college, we broke up in the middle of a class on Shakespeare in college, and we got together at the end of a class on Shakespeare in college. Now, all of Shakespeare's plays have five acts, but apparently he didn't write them this way. It was almost 100 years after his famous first folio was published that his plays are divided into acts and scenes. Now, what's the rationale for five acts? This is not a class in literary criticism, but bear with me. One critic explains the first act introduces the characters, the setting, it ends with a significant piece of action. This is called the exposition. And then the second act is called the complication. And you can imagine what that means. This takes the action and messes it up in some way. In the third act, there's a climax where the fortunes of the character or characters are reversed, good to bad or bad to worse. In the fourth act, the results of the reversal are played out putting the final outcome in doubt. And this is actually called the resolution. Now the fifth act winds it all up by presenting the consequences of the resolution and tying up loose ends called, in French, the denouement. I just wanted to say denouement. Well, if the world were a Shakespearean play, what act would we be in? the question I'd like you to consider. The answer to the question is the title of my message this morning. We are in the final act. I'm defining final act as the final part of the story in which all the strands of the plot are drawn together and everything unsure or uncertain is explained and resolved. Now in the case of the story of the world, our text presents us with a startling claim. We are in the final period of time in the history of the world. Something elsewhere scripture calls the last days. Peter calls this in verse 20 of chapter one, the last times. So given the fact that we're in the final act, the concern of our text this morning is to help you know what it means and how you should live. So let's take a look at our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. This is the eternal and inerrant word of God. Let's give our attention to its reading. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The final act. I want to begin with noting that there is an unusual unusual description in verse 7. This is my first point. There are three key words that show us how unusual this description is. The first word in verse 7 I'm going to point out is the word all things, which in, in the original Greek is one word, and it's the first word. So in the Greek language, the first word, unlike in English, the first word is often the most important word. It's called fronting. And so by the, the author had a choice of what word to put first, and he put the word all things at the beginning of the sentence to emphasize that this is the concentration of the passage. All things describes the total transformation of everything in created reality. It literally means all things. This word is comprehensive in scope. Nothing is exempt from the transformation which is coming. There's a connection also to the previous verse, which isn't surprising, for this is why, verse 6 says, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The idea here is not that the dead have a sermon preached to them, but while they were alive, they heard the gospel, they believed, and they suffered at the hands of the judgment of men. This idea here judged in the flesh the way people are. So that's certainly coming to an end. The end of all things is at hand. The end of the human way of thinking and acting and being and judging. Judging by appearances and not by the heart. Judging by human standards and not by God's law, God's righteousness. That's certainly coming to an end. But even the natural world itself, the trees and the planets and the weather patterns and the oceans... All of it is coming to an end. All natural laws will change as, as we understand them, though they will continue in some ways, I'm guessing, in the new world. Point being, currently, society judges the Christian gospel to be irrelevant. But all things are coming to an end. All of that is going to an end, is going to end. And what's going to come in its place is that everything will be judged with reference to the resurrection of Christ. Look back at verse 22 of chapter 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. That phrase, having been subjected to him, is going to be important in just a moment. Point is, nothing... And no one is exempt from the transformation that has come about through the resurrection of Christ. All things have been subjected to him. Now, 
The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 explains that we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We still experience and regularly encounter opposition to Christ. The, the second psalm says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. We still see the, the enemies of God and the mockers and the scoffers and even the enemy of God in my own heart. And when I mock and scoff against God, we still see and experience that on a regular basis. But the end of all that is at hand. That's the second word. Not only all things, but the end of all things is at hand. There's a temptation here to read the end in terms of the conclusion of all things, like the dinger on a bell and the last second has elapsed. But I don't think that's what Peter is talking about. That's why I say this is an unusual description. There is a coming judgment. There's no doubt Jesus has not returned in the flesh yet. We still see opposition to Christ in the world. Peter talks about the judgment several times. It's described in chapter 4, verse 5. It's described in chapter 1, 17. It's described later on in this chapter. But what Peter is describing in verse 7, the end of, of all things, is the final act, not the final second it's the final time. This is the time which had been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ. Look again at verse 22 of chapter 3. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's the end that is being described in verse 7. The end is the resurrection and all that follows it. Not necessarily the second coming, though that's encompassed in it. I think it's natural for us as modern people to think in terms of time on a clock. The end is the last thing in a sequence of time units, the last minute, the last hour. But end in the Bible doesn't just refer to clock time. The word is telos, and it can refer to the last stage of a process, the last act, which is a title of my message. Commentator Karen Jobes puts it this way, Peter is saying, that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are living in the last days. The end of all things is at hand. We're in it even now. She says, this is the last stage of God's redemption plan. So, in other words, as God has planned on the great chessboard of his planning, however he does that, Nothing else remains. It's all been accomplished. So we talk about the imminent return of Christ. We're saying not that it's going to happen any moment, though it could. We're saying that nothing else remains to be accomplished in order for that to happen. It could happen at any moment, but the end of all things at hand doesn't mean it's going to happen at any moment. Now, who knows? Were Peter's readers expecting this to happen in a few years, in a few decades even, from the time that they first read this? It's possible. It's also possible they wouldn't be surprised that 20 centuries had passed, that we are essentially standing in the same eschatological, redemptive historical place as the readers of this letter stood when they first read these words. As then, so now, nothing remains 
but for Christ to come back in his sovereign, as we'll see at the end of this passage, in his sovereign, powerful, and almighty way. The end of all things is at hand. That's the second key word. And in this unusual description, my first point, the third phrase is this phrase, at hand, or some of your translations may say near. The end of all things is near. This is an interesting word that points to the, that the goal of the redemptive process is, is already being realized through Jesus' resurrection. In John's Gospel, we read this, that, that we not only are going to be saved, but we already now experience salvation here and today. That's actually a, a somewhat underappreciated truth for some Christians. You hunker down and you grit your teeth and you clench your fists and you try to make it to the end. And somebody says, what are you doing? I'm waiting for salvation. It's like, wait a minute. The gospel is good news, not just for the other side of the Jordan, not just for eternity, but here and now. Like, it actually comports you and equips you to enjoy and, and thrive and grow in a fallen world, in the midst of suffering. You have a, a table spread before you, according to David in the 23rd Psalm. Your enemies are around and your cup overflows. That's because of the resurrection of Christ. We, we celebrate even now the reality of our... Uh, Paul says in Colossians that right where you sit, you are also spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what it means. The end of all things is at hand. You are united to Christ here and now by faith. All the treasures of heaven are at your disposal. And you are equipped and girded with the very armor of God. It's unusual. This phrase is unusual. The end of all things is at hand. It doesn't occur anywhere else in just this way in the Bible, first of all. But the ESV translates it in the present tense. The end of all things is at hand. And it's not a bad translation, but a, a fuller translation would sound like this. The Phil Henry translation. I'm going to patent this and make some money off of it. The end of all things has come about, is happening, and will be perfected at any moment. There's a fullness to this notion of being at hand, that it's, that it's experiencing the consummation of the kingdom of God already. True, the return of Christ at the end of history is necessary for God to achieve his goal, the redemption of humanity. But when Peter writes the end of all things at near, he's describing the fact that we are in the final act. Now, you may not realize it or not, but this has been a short course on how to understand Christian time and history. There's a great deal of confusion about this, and it really is the simple. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, and we are in the final act of the history of the world. And if you need an eschatological view, that will do. That will do you quite well. Secondly, not only do we have an unusual description of this final act, but we need to know what's our job. If this is a a drama that's being played out. What's the role that I play 
that you play? Well, we see in our passage four vital roles to play. We're not just waiting for the end. In other words, we're in it already. And so there's work to be done. The curtain has come up, and it is now time to play your part. What are these four vital roles? Well, here's how I've labeled them. We have a clear thinker, a sacrificial lover, a cheerful host, and a charismatic. This is going to be a good play. A clear thinker, a sacrificial lover, a cheerful host, and a charismatic. Let's look at what each one of these means. The text says in the second half of verse 7 that you are to be a clear thinker. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I I loved when uh, Samuel was sharing his need for wisdom about his future. This is exactly what you need, brother. We need to be clear thinking. We need to think clearly. Now, there's two terms to describe my, this role of a clear thinker. It's being self-controlled and sober-minded. And it, it serves, these are, this is a case in the Bible where these two words both describe the same thing. It's, it's like two sides of a statue, if you will. You look on one side and you look on the other side. Sober-minded, self-controlled. Together, the picture that we have is that of a clear thinker. The word here from classical Greek combines wisdom and thinking. That's why I'm calling it a clear thinker. Now, we get self-controlled from that because someone who thinks clearly is able to use or exercise control over his or her choices in life. You know, whenever I lose control, it's because I'm not thinking clearly. I mean, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but let me emphasize, I am a sinner saved by grace. And sometimes I'm not thinking like myself. I'm thinking just like a sinner. And so we need to be clear thinkers so that what comes out of our lives represents self-control. That's where the ESV gets the word. Some synonyms are reasonable, sensible, keeping your head, having a sound mind. But remember, we're in the final act, so Christ's resurrection has already put us in sort of the soft light of the rising sun of the new age. We can already see glimmers and glimpses of God's grace and power beaming through the dark, evil world in which we live. Salvation is already being hammered out in this fallen world, and we're making significant, although not always obvious, substantial inroads on the enemy's territory. I mean, look at you. Look at your family. Look at this church. Look at Christians meeting across South Jersey and around the world through ordinary believers like you and me and clear thinking, thinking like Christians. Now, let's explain what we mean by clear thinking because, you know, sometimes the way a Christian thinks, if you're a new believer, you maybe haven't discovered this yet, but people are going to think you're crazy sometimes as a Christian. Jesus was told in Mark 3.21 that he was out of his mind. This is Jesus. His mother and his family thought that he was out of his mind. That's a quote. Literally, it's the opposite of clear thinking. 
but when, when Jesus met the demon-possessed man in the tombs in Luke 8.35, after he'd cast out that legion of demons, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, there he was seated, clothed, and in his right mind. Sometimes people will say, Phil, how are you doing? I'm, I'm clothed, and then I'm in my right mind. Some days that's all I can manage. Paul, when he's speaking before Festus, Festus, the, uh, that Roman governor, says, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. And he says, oh, Festus, I am thinking clearly. I am thinking very clearly. And even the church at Corinth thought that Paul was crazy. And he defended himself by saying this, are we out of our minds? It's for God. Are we out of our minds? It's for God, 2 Corinthians 5.13. So the role of a clear thinker is quite important in our text. Do you notice why? It says, be self-controlled and sober-minded, that is to say, a clear thinker. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Now this is, a, is an interesting phrase. Prayer is not, let's just say it's, it's not the popular thing in the church that it should be. But in these last days, in the final act, the first vital role is a clear thinker. And the clear thinker is needed because prayer is vital. Prayer apparently is not just asking God for things, but you need to be a clear thinker so that you can pray. Pr prayer is, 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 depends on you having a frame of mind that is centered on, on the gospel, aligned. It's like if you have two images and you're trying to line them up. Clear thinking lines them up. So often when I go to pray, those images are like, they're blurred. I'm like at the eye doctor with that horrible thing in front of my face. And How's this lens? Oh no, it gives me a headache. And with that lens, I go to prayer. What God is saying here, Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying prayer requires you to get the lens of clarity before you go to prayer. And sometimes that's the best prayer to have. You go on your face and you say, God, I am confused about the gospel. I am forgetting who I am and who you are and what you're doing in this world. I'm living like it's not the final act and I'm not a player on the stage. I'm just a spectator. I need clear thinking here, Lord. It also tells me that prayer isn't natural. Like you just don't know how to pray automatically. Moses says, teach me to number my days aright, that I would gain a heart of wisdom. I take this to mean Moses understood that he needed to be a clear thinker in order to be useful to God in his purposes in his generation. Psalm 37 says that we delight ourselves in the Lord, that is, we get clear thinking, and then he will give us the desires of our heart in prayer. I think this also emphasizes a myth that prayer has to be some fantastic feeling of warmth and energy in your body, you know, where you tingle. And 
that can drive some people away from prayer or give a misimpression that prayer is some sort of an ecstatic experience of the Spirit. Now, it is an experience of the Spirit, but perhaps not the way that you think. Prayer is taking what you know about the gospel and going to God with it. And that's the kind of prayer that we certainly need as a church. I wonder how much time we spend in prayer in the light of the fact that we're in the final act of history of the world. This is the first role that you need to play. All the more reason because we're living in a day and in an age when we need to keep our heads in light of how bad things can be sometimes. And by the way, that brings me to the second role in this final act. I'm calling it a sacrificial lover. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. A sacrificial lover is the second role. Having a clear head is easier said than done because it's, Jesus said that in the last times the love of many will grow cold. Especially when you're faced with troubles, your love, like a fire, is quenched. So we need a sacrificial lover on the stage. Now I'm not talking about a knight in shining armor that gives up his life when he's fighting the dragon for the princess in the tower, though that is a lovely picture. What I'm talking about is actually much harder. I'm talking about the sacrifice required to forgive the sins of someone who has sinned against you. In other words, the sacrificial lover that's needed is not someone who's going to die, but that may be called for, but more live. You're called to sacrifice in love for the brother or sister who has offended you. Love doesn't just cover over a multitude of mistakes, apparently, according to Peter. It covers a multitude of sins. What does this mean that love covers sin? Well, there's three possible meanings. Sins could be covered when I love you. Even though you sinned against me, my sins are now covered because I'm doing a good thing. But that can't be the case because Jesus is the one who bore my sins in his body. So I can't cover my sins. So love covers a multitude of sins doesn't mean that my love for you, a sinner, covers my sins. That's impossible. Some people say that, but that's not possible. It might mean that love passes over the sins, you know, sort of turns a blind eye rather than continuing the dispute, you know, making things worse. In love, you just kind of leave it alone. I think there's truth to this, and it definitely echoes the truth that Peter is quoting from Proverbs 10:12. here. He's quoting a proverb. But this seems to me to be more active than simply passing by and not making it worse. So I don't think that's sufficient either. Rather, I think that it's in light of Christ bearing my sins and in imitation of his sacrifice for me, I am choosing to love you even though you've sinned against me. And rather than just passing by, I'm embracing you, a sinner who has rejected me. That's the love that we're looking for, the sacrificial lover. 
I love Jesus' illustration. How many times should we forgive our brother, Peter asked in Matthew chapter 18. Up to seven times? And Peter said, or Jesus said, 70 times seven. I also love the story about the woman who at a meal, when Jesus enters, she's a notorious sinner, is washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And one of the company looks scornfully at this display, this awful display, and says, and the text either says, was thinking it or had the gall to say it out loud. If he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't be letting her do that. And Jesus, because he knows the thoughts of our hearts, he said, who would love more, a man who is forgiven a small debt or someone who is forgiven a big debt? And you know, it's a setup. So he says, well, obviously, the man who was forgiven the big debt. And he said, that's this woman. You know, I walked in here, you didn't give me anything. And yet, from the moment I walked in, she didn't stop crying at my feet, anointing, washing my feet, and drying them with her hair. And here's the payoff phrase in that, in that story. He who, loves, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. That's a sacrificial lover. And what I want to see for our church, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, is substantial increase in the level of sacrificial love for one another. That is to say, we need to be better at not just overlooking one another's sins, but forgiving them. Not just passing by, but embracing the one who sins against us and says, Jesus loves you, and so do I. There's too much thin commitment to church these days, don't you think? I mean, people think this is just kind of a, a religious activity, but in fact, we're engaged in the final act in the history of the world. And you were called to be a clear thinker and a sacrificial lover. And that should, that should show up in your engagement and involvement in this church sacrifice for the sinners around you. The third role on the stage, and I am running out of time, so we'll be, we'll be quick here. Cheerful, a cheerful host. So the stage is, uh, Sarah just produced a play, and she's, she and Will are brilliant at this stuff. Um, so I'm picturing a stage, you know. Will and Sarah have kind of done their magic scripting and everybody has their parts and you know, now we have three characters on stage we've got the clear thinker we've got the sacrificial lover and a cheerful host what is the cheerful host Christians have been reborn by God to a new and living hope that needs to be displayed like on a stage that hope needs to be displayed for other people in a, in a beneficial way, with your house and at your table. That's what that means. And Peter emphasizes cheerfulness. Notice he doesn't let you skinny out. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. All right, I guess you can come over. Boy, this is going to be a good meal. Sure, come on over. We have plenty. I've got an extra bed. Pull out couch, sleep on the floor, blow up mattress, sleeping bag, pup tent in the back. You're welcome. 
at my house. Now, this could be abused, and in the ancient world, in one of the earliest Christian instructional documents called the Didache, they actually gave rules for hospitality, like you're not allowed to stay for too long and just sponge off of other people. So being cheerful in hospitality doesn't give some stranger an open-ended sort of a blank check to, to take from you as much as that person wants. But we have a long ways to go. Because this is South Jersey, and you know what that means. My home is my castle. And you're not allowed in without an invitation. Six months in advance, well-planned, vetted. We are to be cheerfully and graciously hosting one another in our homes. You need to know the way to one another's house without your phone. Multiple trips. It's common. You should know the name of your fellow congregants animals. That's how you know that you've been at somebody's house for a few times. You actually remember the name of their dog or the gerbil or in our case King George the fish. Now no cheating when you come over. Hey King George the fish it's so nice to see you again. But you get the idea. Hospitality is a synonym for love and that's why it follows sacrificial love because it requires a sacrifice. Breaking bread Sharing a meal, eating together, feasting together. This is what Christians have always done. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, we're in one another's homes. And you know, when we're there, it's harder to fight when you're in fellowship. It's harder to suspect someone or to show uh, scorn or judgment or stereotype someone if you're eating with them at the table. It's also harder to ignore a brother's or a sister's needs because, oh man, something you're going to mention at the table is not something you're going to mention in the congregation. It's just not even that you're hiding it. It's just you didn't think about it. But when you're in your home or you're in someone else's home, you're more vulnerable. And you let people in to the real deal. And now we have hospitality. We're, we're hosting and sharing together. You know, in my work as a pastor, housing and shelter has, is a constant need. I'm talking about people who are homeless or transient or struggle with finances, get kicked out of apartments, various things, in between jobs. There, there is a constant need for shelter in South Jersey. Ask any social worker. If you're a social worker, I, I assure you, you will agree with me. In fact, the last time I called a, sh a shelter for permanent housing, you know how long the waiting list was? Five years. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And you've got to wait on a government list for five years before you can qualify for permanent housing and you're in crisis. How's the next five years look for you? How'd you like to be without any permanent home for five years? Couch surfing or going from a hotel to a motel to your car? Hospitality. If you're a Christian and you struggle with housing, where are you going to go? Well, I'm looking at at least 15, 20 people with homes and guest rooms, basements, and income. And all those things can be shaped up, spiffed up, and it's easy to make a place where you can host someone like that. I encourage you. This is a serious role. These are the last days. 
And Christians are increasingly struggling in a hostile world. We need to practice hospitality. You need to make a plan. You need to be creative. You need to know strangers as well. This is focusing on hospitality for the church, as church, for ourselves, but we obviously also need to include outsiders in our midst. The last role on the stage is a charismatic. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't know what I'm talking about, but charismatic is a certain sort of Christian that's known as raising the hands slightly above the shoulders, maybe even wiggling the fingers and swinging the hips and clapping during a song and maybe even shouting out occasionally or giving an hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord. This is a charismatic. Oh, we have a couple charismatics in here. How about that? Well, the charismatic, like Presbyterian, like Baptist, like Lutheran, like Methodist, you know, it takes a really good word and makes it very narrow. Charisma literally means gift in Greek. And a charismatic is someone who loves the gifts. In my opinion, sometimes to an excess, but that's a friendly dispute. What our text is telling us is that the role on the stage is for a charismatic. Verse 10, as each one has received a charisma, use it to serve one another. In other words, in these last days, in the final act, at the end of the world, in the power of Christ, he's risen, seated on the throne. We need to be filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We each are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And it's a stewardship. Notice it says. The word steward is actually the master of a household, and so each individual member of the body is like the chief of the house, of the church house. You have a gift. It's been given to you. It's varied. Each one has a different gift, apparently. This is like Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors. And each one of you is to use your gift the way you're supposed to use it. The two broad categories are word and deed. This echoes Colossians 3.17. So whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. So there, broadly speaking, there are word gifts and there are serving or deed gifts. And in each case, the word gift, we're told in verse 11, the one who speaks, the word gifts, are to speak oracles of God. This could mean actually reading the Scripture, but I think it's more general. I think it's knowing the mind of God and, and speaking in a way that people recognize that you've been listening to God. And yes, this includes preachers, but I'm like the last one in, in the chain here. The oracles of God need to be on every single one of your, your lips, but especially those of you who have been given this gift of speaking God's truth. And then serving could be the specific office of the deacon, and I think it is, but more generally, it's those tangible, practical gifts of love, actions. And some of you are excellent at this. But notice that the speaker needs to speak the mind of God, and the, and the doer, the servant, needs to serve with the strength that God supplies. By the way, here's the recipe for church burnout. If you're doing stuff in your own strength, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. And so many churches, like 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's not a good ratio. That's about our ratio, too, in some areas of our ministry. So I really want to see that 
expand. And the key is, what is God calling you to do? How has he gifted you? And you need to do that. You may be young. You may be a woman. You may be, English isn't your first language. You may not be a college-educated, whatever your reason and your thinking, okay, I've heard you. Now, God has given you a gift. You are called to steward it in this fellowship, in this body. I can't do it. You need to do it. You don't need permission. God has given you permission. So go and serve. The last point I'll simply mention is its beautiful outcome. That when this happens, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God's glory through Christ. How does this work? Well, when I'm on the stage, the last, it's the last act in the history of the world, and I'm sacrificially serving, I'm clear thinking, I'm using my gifts, I'm cheerfully hosting, when I'm doing that, Jesus Christ is praised because he knows that I couldn't do that apart from him. And so it's through Christ that God is glorified. That has to do with the fact that we're doing everything that we do with the strength that God supplies. There's a joke in our family around the 4th of July, and that is the grand finale. So you know what the grand finale is, right? The fireworks are going off, and after a while, there's a lot of fireworks going off. And man, that's, that's amazing, especially when they set it to patriotic music. It's, it's, a, it's a fun day. Well, my joke is the first sort of slight hint of the grand finale, I say, oh, that's the grand finale. And then my kids roll their eyes, then five minutes later, no, 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 this is the grand finale. And I repeat this like just enough times to be annoying, and then one more time, which is the role of a father of adult children. Well, we are children in the grand finale. This is it. All the fireworks are going off, and I'm not kidding. This is the final act in the play, the drama of the story of the world. And we're not allowed to sit watching. We've been called by God. We've been equipped in the gospel to be on stage to be serving him in specific ways. So last week I told you to synchronize your watches. This week I'm telling you, roll, it's time to act. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word this morning. We thank you that you have encouraged and challenged us. Please help us to apply what we've learned to the upbuilding and the benefit of this church, yes, but really the whole kingdom of God, wherever you may take us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.